All right, this is the uh, Friday q and I'm Mike Winger, and I'm here to answer your questions about Christianity, the Bible, God, all that kind of important stuff, helping you learn to think biblically about everything. Our first question today is an anonymous question, a very challenging one. I hope I can give some counsel to the lady who sent it in. This is an anonymous question that asks, my husband is a recovering alcoholic, now beginning to attend AA meetings. As a wife, what are the most practical ways I can support him while encouraging him to begin leading our home in a biblical way without overwhelming him? Uh, let me say a, several things to, to start off with. First off, your attitude um, is is beautiful, is wonderful, right? Like you you want to support him, you want to help him, you want to... There's, there's a lot of reason to be bitter that you've got that you could be bitter, right? Like good re good reasons as far as the world's concerned. <laughs> um, but as a Christian, you look to the cross and you look at Jesus and you say, hey, I'm trying to set aside those things. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful thing. Um, and I've, I encourage you for that attitude and just holding that attitude. Um, how can I help without being overwhelming? Like that is an incredibly humble and gracious and kind attitude. Let me share a few things though with you if, because I can't give you all the details of your situation because I think you know somebody have to like live life with you, so to speak, or spend a lot of time counseling you to do that. But uh, one of the things I want you to know is this, uh, very important. It is not your responsibility for your husband to stop drinking. Like it is, this is really important. And, and this has nothing to do with the bitterness stuff. As a Christian, you lay aside all bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, like it says in Ephesians. You set all that stuff aside so it's not clouding your judgment, not messing up your thinking. But you also need to set aside the idea, the thought, if, if you have it at all, that it's your responsibility to to make your husband stop drinking or that his sobriety depends upon you. It's great that he's in AA. It's great that he's like taking steps. I know some people really don't like AA. I'm, I, I don't have a much of an opinion either way about it, but I'm glad he's taking steps to try to recover, to try to grow, to try to change. Um, that's very good things. But yes, please know this is very important is the um, division of responsibilities that we understand this as Christians. I am not responsible for other people's behaviors. I am only responsible for mine. And and the reason why I want to encourage you with this is because oftentimes, and it may or may not be true in your situation, but oftentimes in a family where there's dependence going on, someone has is, is alcohol dependence, drug, drug addiction, that kind of thing, um, they will often create an environment because of their behavior where everyone around them starts to feel responsible for that person's attitudes and actions. And that's a very unhealthy and unchristian thing. And so I would encourage you to resist that. Now, while you're resisting that, while you're saying, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can to help my husband, but it's not, but it's not my job. It's not like actually my role for him to stop drinking. That's his role. He's the one that puts the drink to his lips. It's, it's up to him. Um, but while you're doing that, you then also want to avoid that, that potential bitterness that comes in. Uh, sometimes, especially when, when a spouse starts to reform and they have godly behavior where they've had really ungodly behavior before, sometimes this is an opportunity for the enemy to come in and, and stir up bitterness. I know it's weird. It may, may not affect your life at all, but it has affected many people where they're like, well, now that they're acting better, I'm actually, I feel like I have freedom to be angry about the past now. And there's like a, a sense in which it's like, okay, you may have to process through some stuff as you see a change in behavior. Um, guard your heart there, right? Take those issues, those real issues, real complaints to, to the Lord first. And I asked my wife also, in addition to this, um, what her counsel would be. I was like, how would you answer this, right? Because you wanted to know, right? How do I um, support him while encouraging him to be, be a, being a leader in our home biblically without overwhelming him? 
And her answer was that there's sometimes a challenge, and I'm gonna put this in my words, not hers, but there's a challenge where you know she'll see something in me and she's thinking, okay, is this one of those things where I say something or don't say something? And that's the first question she has to ask. Like, do I say something or not? Because I don't, I don't wanna to try to like become nagging, but I also want to assist and help. And the other thing she'll ask is, am I doing it in a, this was her term, in a mothering way? <laughs> and I like, the, I like that she asked this question, right? Because um, this is healthy in our relationships, the, the whole love and respect thing that I think is very important in, in, in husband-wife relationships, like it says in Ephesians. It's important that I think the wife, she's, she's the equal of the husband, but she's not the mom of the husband. And so her way of processing it was, you know, she's approaching me with a problem maybe I'm causing, is she asks, okay, am I, am I saying this to him in a way that is mothering or in a way that is still respectful to my husband? And um, I know that some are going to be triggered by this in our modern culture, but I think that's a godly thing that she does, and I very much appreciate it. And it's something you could, you could process. Am I doing this in a way that's... Um, <clears throat> helping mothering what what's what role am i taking in my husband's life as i as i interact on this issue other practical things are like you know get alcohol out of the home <laughs> things like that um you not drinking around your husband may be a real help to him but again it's going to be his responsibility so laying aside the bitterness of the past continuing with your current attitude how do i lovingly encourage him like that's going to be the biggest challenge is just having that attitude the whole time and God, I think, is going to bless you. And listen, even if he backslides, you can still be honoring Christ. Even if he fails, you can still have a job well done in your role because ultimately your, your job as a wife is you're honoring Christ. You're doing it as unto the Lord. And God is pleased with that. And so there's so much more that could be said. And, um, uh, you know, if, if I knew more about your situation, um, you said you want him to lead your home in a biblical way. Um, one last thing I'll say on that is, if he's not very good at it, then part of your job will be to tolerate him not being very good at it. Um, right, so like when you want someone to drive and you're in the passenger seat, the way that you can be a passenger that will help them drive, <laughs> help them lead in that, in that scenario is to not complain about their driving a lot. <laughs> That's the idea. To not constantly just focus on how you wish they would drive better. Like you brake too quick, you brake too slow. Um, those types of things. And there's an element of that where it's like, hey, if, if he leads in spiritual ways, if he leads you in prayer, make sure you're just participating and meeting him there where you're at um, and not standing in judgment over his prayer because that's probably his fear at that moment is that you're you're not approving of that of that of that leadership that he's providing there. So there's those my answers there. I do hope they help. God give you wisdom. God bless you and help you and give you grace and um, speed along the recovery of your husband and your family. Number two, Jesus is my dad says, where were people who died and later got resurrected located in that period? Do they go to heaven or hell and get snatched back to earth after they're resurrected? E.g. Lazarus, Dorcas, Eutychus, these are different people. So um, these are people who, who died and then were later resurrected. Lazarus being a really extreme example because he, he died for multiple days. Lazarus was dead for, um, for, for four days. Okay, so where was he? Where was he? Where's, where was his soul? Um, the, the, my belief about the intermediate period are as follows. The, the, the soul survives the body and there is a locality in some sense. I don't know in what sense exactly. I'm a little fuzzy on that. But there, the soul is located somewhere 
at least in some sense. I mean, how does a soul, a disembodied soul experience space and all that? I don't know. But the soul's having an experience, okay? The disembodied soul has some kind of experience. Um, and that the location or the place in that of that experience is different before Christ's death than it is after Christ's death. And this is kind of key if you want to understand at least my perspective on this. Before Christ's death, I think that the souls were gathered to a place of either... Um, some, uh, let me see, how do I put this? A place of comfort until final, like, entrance into God's presence or a place of, like, unpleasant, um, like, the difference between jail and prison. So, like, a, a local cop can arrest you and throw you in the local jail at the police precinct. But after your judgment comes, then you can be thrown in prison. Okay, so there's something kind of like the jail versus the prison. So, I think that the souls of, of the unsaved go to that, which which biblically the Greek term would be Hades. And the saved go to a place that's similar to that, except that it's a place of comfort, right? it's, but it's similar in some features. After the death and resurrection of Christ, I think that our souls go to be with, with the Lord. And this is based on a lot of different scriptures, but one is like Paul, and I've taught on this and people think that you're, I'm misquoting it, but I'm not quoting it. I'm summarizing the teaching we learned from it. Well, you'll either hear me or not on that, <laughs> but that I do think it's true that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's not a quote. It's a summary of a teaching based upon what Paul taught in a passage where he talked about his own potential death. He thought he would be present with the Lord if he died, immediately present with the Lord, which is why he'd rather right now be dead and present with God than, than with the people, but he's going to continue on serving. What's the difference? Why is this different? Because I think that Jesus's death delivered those from the sort of temporary holding place of comfort into the presence of God, though they're still waiting on the resurrected bodies. So all this to say, um, Lazarus was before the cross. Lazarus would have been in that place of comfort, right? Abraham's bosom, so to speak, and then brought back. Um, whether he would remember it or not and have details or stories or not, we don't know. We don't have anything on that. Um, somebody like Eutychus, well, that, he would have been in the very presence of God. But Eutychus is different than Lazarus in an important way. Lazarus was dead for four days. Eutychus was dead very briefly. It was just for moments, it seems. If, if I remember correctly, Eutychus is the gentleman who fell out the window while Paul was teaching for too long. <laughs> okay, it wasn't too long. Ah, Paul's my model for teaching, right? He taught all day into the night. And um, and Eutychus fell, out, fell asleep and fell out the window, and then Paul resurrected him. But he was dead for like moments. So... You know, would 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 the soul have departed that quickly? I don't know. Yeah, but I do think in general you have those two different locations before the cross and after the cross, so the believers now will be in the presence of God when we pass. Number three, blind vision has a question. Says in something like pursuing, um, in something like pursuing a relationship, or even in general, how do you tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and your own anxiety telling you not to do something? Oh, so this is going to be pretty subjective. Uh, well, let me put it this way. Maybe I can maybe I can make this better by categorizing my answer. There's an objective element of how do you tell this is the Holy Spirit, and there's a subjective element about how you tell this is the Holy Spirit. Um, the objective one is much easier to talk about. The objective one could be things like this. The thing that I think the Spirit is telling me to do or leading me to do, is it consistent with the character of Christ and with the teaching of God's word? Okay, so I, I know a guy who who um, said that the Holy Spirit was leading him to marry this girl and, and, and travel to another country. And then um, 
they had barely known each other. She was she was in a very unhealthy relationship. They immediately got together without knowing each other very well at all. And it was it was just everything about it was very sketchy, right? Like it looked reckless, it looked unwise, and it looked like it was he was driven by wanting to Christianize his desires and impulses, right? That that I mean, this is just what it looked like. So that that was the sort of slightly more objective analysis of it. You know, within months they were back, and he was like, "Well, the Lord told you know, Lord, the Lord led me to divorce her and come back." <laughs> You're like, "Okay, well, obviously you were not being led by the Spirit." I can objectively say that, especially the second action proves that the first was probably not the Lord either. Um, so yes, is my is my behavior consistent with the Holy with the Holy Spirit? Are my motives good? There's a, here's another slightly objective question we can ask. I'm being led to do this. What are my motives? And this to me is, it, it maybe a borders between objective and subjective, but it seems to me to be very important in my own evaluation of things. Why do I want this? Why do I want this? If I am, am not just finding a way to do a thing I want to do for the Lord, like I'm going to go uh, hang out at this bar because I can witness there. Like I'm going to find a way to make, I'm not saying that you can't go to bars. Like I'm just just everybody slow down. <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to pick an illustration here that might at least might be a selfish and ungodly motive. So say I'm going to go to the bar and I, I I'm going to have drinking I have drinking issues and I say I'm going to witness there. There's lots of unsafe people there, man. They know me and that you know they feel like I'm one of them and I connect to them. And so I'm going to go and I'm just going to witness. But I go there and I get drunk. I go there and I I'm a bad witness. Well, I'm kidding myself. Like I'm not being honest about my motives. What I'm doing is I'm trying to put a Christian blanket on top of some ulterior motive I have. And that's something that um, we have a tendency to do as humans, right? Here's the thing I want to do. Here's my, here's my Christian veneer I can put on that. Here's my God permission I can, I can lay over that. But to, to find out if that's happening, I, I look a little deeper and I ask, why do I, why am I really wanting this? What's my real method or real goal here? And that's an important question to ask. So does it violate the character of Christ? Does it violate the teaching of scriptures, um, like divorcing, you know, in an ungodly way? Um, does it, does it, is, are my motives correct? Because if my motives are incorrect, then I may be finding an excuse to do something. Um, now on a more, even more subjective way of evaluating these things, because I do believe you can be led by the spirit, but I do also believe that I can be led by my own desires. I can be led by my own heart that I confuse for the Holy Spirit. So how do I test that? Um, motives is one thing I mentioned. Other stuff you can mention is your track record. You can look at. So let's say, um, so Blind Vision, that's the the YouTube guy, who the name of the YouTube channel who asked this question. Let's say that you look at your, your track record and you go, I've been led by the Spirit, at least I felt I was, a number of times, but I've only got maybe like a 50% success rate. Or at least when I look back, I don't know for sure it was the Lord, but but it seems to me, that I'm not super reliable. Well, then I'm going to lower my confidence in my in my impressions that the Lord is leading me. And what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to try to avoid the false positives by, um, forgive me guys if this, I hope this helps somebody out there. This may seem a little confusing. It's how it is in my head, right? Um, I'm going to try to avoid the false positives by rating, raising the standard of confirmation. That is, how... How confident am I, subjectively speaking, that this is from the Lord and not from me? And if my confidence is like decently high, but that that level of confidence only produces like a, a low success rate where I look back years later and go, yeah, that was the Lord. 
Okay, well, then, then that's not a high enough confidence. I got to have it much higher. So I'm going to raise that level. And this may mean that a lot of the time, you're not sure what, what the Lord wants you to do. And you have to just make a decision based upon what would be godly, what would seek first his kingdom, what would honor Christ, what would bless and love others, what would, you know, stir up love and good works and things like that. Um, and that's okay. You can, we can make those types of decisions. It's okay if you make, the, if, if you just say, Lord, if I'm not sure that it's you, if I'm unsure, if, if I'm here wavering, this might be God, it might be me. It's okay, Christians, I believe this. It's okay if you treat that like it's not the Lord. And you treat it like it's just an idea you have that might be God, might not, but it, but you don't know it's the Lord, so you can't rely on it as if it's divine revelation. You must run it through the filter of godly thinking, biblical thinking, and make a good choice. Because God knows how to speak to you. Like, if God wants to speak to me, I don't have to sit there and wring my hands and be like, is he telling me this? Is he telling me that? Like, my personal belief is that I think God can speak to me clearly. And I think I can support this somewhat in scripture because when I see the Lord speaking to people, I don't see them wringing their hands typically as if there's uncertainty about it. That, that doesn't seem to at least normally be what happens. Sure, you have Gideon, except Gideon doesn't seem like Gideon had a clear revelation from God. He still wrung his hands, but it wasn't because it was unclear, right? It was because of other issues. Um, when you have like the people praying and they, and the spirit says, send out Paul and Barnabas. This is in the book of Acts. Send out, you know, Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. You don't have like this great uncertainty. You know, God might be calling Paul and Barnabas. Let's just send them out by faith. Like faith isn't meant to be used. Here's an, I think a, a useful principle for us, especially us charismatics. Faith is not meant to be used to fill in the gap of all that space where you're not sure what God is saying. Where you just, you faith the rest of, of, of the command. Okay, now it's from the Lord. That to me seems like a, a, a potential recipe for all kinds of problems. We have the clarity of God's word. This should guide us regularly. And you should have some significant degree of certainty about what you think God is saying. Because I've seen an absolute uh, litany of examples of people who were led by their hearts and they thought it was the Lord. I just, and, and it's so often in romantic stuff, right? Because that's where our hearts get stirred up more than anything. When I like somebody, when I care about somebody, I want somebody, then it's like, I, I am feeling so strongly about this person that it must be the Lord. Yeah, but strong emotion does not equal the Holy Spirit. We need more than that. And if that leaves us in limbo, we're not in limbo. We go with the scriptures, the word of God, and we make godly wise choices. There's some thoughts on that. Um, some objective, some subjective stuff, good things to work through. And if you're uns uncertain, you fall back on following what God's word says applied to the situation. Brenda Duguay says, my only son died of OD last year. I'm so sorry. I don't know what OD is. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that though, Brenda. Um, I was angry at God, walked away for a bit. I told him, if I am to serve you, I want the real God. Isaiah 43, 18 through 19 says, get over it. How do I get over it? Let me read that passage, Brenda. You're going through some really heavy stuff, and um, I hope I can bring you some help. Okay, here's the passage you mentioned, Brenda. Isaiah 43 says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Brenda, I think that you've misunderstood this verse. And this is good news. This is good news. Because I don't think you have to get over it. But let me 
offer you some explanation as to why this is. So remember not the former things. This is not a rule for Christians that we should just take and apply recklessly. We have to understand what, what God was saying in Isaiah to the people that were reading it and then how that applies to us. Because if I just like, like if my wife's like, hey, we're, we have a, an appointment, you know, Thursday at three, be ready for that. Well, then I could not show up for the appointment and I could tell her, well, I was obeying Isaiah 43, 18 to remember not the former things. <laughs> so, I, remember, I didn't remember the appointment. Um, that's not what this is about. Uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the word remember is being used in a different sense than we use it in our modern English. We usually literally mean just remember, like be aware of, of a fact of the past. Remember here is about like reminiscing. And it's not telling us not to reminisce about the past ever. Rather, what God is saying is, you will not, to, to the people of Isaiah, here's the, here's the real application, I think. You will not look back at the past thinking, wow, those were the good old days because I'm going to do some great new thing and it's going to be so wonderful that you won't look, you, you will look at the present as the wonderful time and not just the past. That is the thing. But that doesn't mean that we can like do a Joel Osteen and take this verse out of, forgive me guys, but that's what he does. Take a verse out of context and just apply it to any situation of life. Like someone could go to you, Brenda, and say, don't remember the, 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 the past wonderful times you had with your son. Right? Because God's going to do something even better and it's coming right around the corner. He's going to bring you prosperity. He's going to he's going to open the doors that were closed and he's going to turn on the lights that were shut off and he's going to, you know, I don't know. What what do you how did these pre, these 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 preachings? They all just come up with a bunch of different metaphors that are vague. Um he's going to recharge the batteries of your life and turn on your <laughs> turn on your 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 hope switch and I okay, this is the problem. <laughs> with that kind of teaching. Brenda, here's the good news. For the Christian, while while the the um, the statement true is true and applies, it doesn't apply to like this week. It it applies in a hopeful sense about our future eternal joy. The comfort God has for you, Brenda, is the day you stand in his very presence. And in Revelation it tells us he wipes away every tear. This means that you carry, there are some sorrows you carry with you until you stand in the presence of God and then he comforts you. And then you'll be in the day where you no longer reminisce about the past like, like you've, what you've lost is, is gone forever, but instead you're in God's comforts. You're in God's wonderful, there's spring in, in, the, in the desert, right? You are experiencing the joy of the Lord in full and you have his full comfort. That's a future day for you. So Brenda, I'm not saying get over it. You're not gonna get over it. This pain is gonna be with you and you're going to experience it. There's some comfort in knowing that in the future, God's 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 um, God's presence is going to comfort you so much that He will wipe the tears away. He will take away the reason for our crying. But it doesn't happen in this life, right? Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and He calls us to like follow in His path. And that means that we, are, as Christians, we're a, we're a mixed bag. We have the terrible sorrows of life, but like Jesus, we have a joy that's set before us. And for the joy set before us, we endure the sorrows. You have a joy set before you, Brenda. So hang in. But um, Isaiah does not tell you to get over it. It tells you, in a sense, how you'll get over it. And that'll be in the presence of God. You just have to wait. Number five, Tony Oshikanlu says, What are your thoughts on Christians having to be careful so they don't invite demons into their lives through watching horror movies or listening to secular music? Is this biblical? 
Um, no, it's not biblical. It's not necessarily unbiblical. It's just extra biblical. Um, Tony, this is a concern I have personally with <clears throat> a lot of deliverance ministries, um, which is a very broad term. Okay, it, this, I, I'm not saying they're all bad or they don't do any good or anything like anything like that. It, it, it's a mixed bag in my opinion. But one of the issues is whenever I hear someone who's part of like a <clears throat> deliverance ministry or spiritual discernment ministry type thing where they where they where they where they tend to call things out like I look at that and I can see that I can see the spiritual you know happenings behind the thing I'm looking at and they kind of present themselves like that uh, maybe they can in some cases maybe they can't but here's my concern is these people sometimes become sort of the pros that go way beyond scripture on a lot of issues um, so they'll look at a book and they'll proclaim oh you can't own that book that book has demonic connections that music has demonic connections. That music is demonic, and like then maybe maybe say things like, if you watch this movie, you're opening, you're you're not just making a bad decision to um, expose yourself to things that are not healthy, that are not godly, but rather you're actually spiritually opening yourself up for demonic influence in your life. Here I feel as though, um, it's the. Uh, it's the problem of the um, of the doctor who only has one medication he offers people. <laughs> um, so, biblically speaking, demons are real. They have a big impact in the world today, but not everything is demonic. And some sicknesses are demonic, but not all. And that, I mean, biblically speaking, I, I've given examples in the Mark series that I taught through the Gospel of Mark, where there's times where stuff was like like Peter's mom was sick. Jesus didn't cast a demon out of her. He just healed her and raised her up. A little girl had died. He, he didn't he didn't cast out the demon of death on, in her life or something. He just raised her up. Another man, a boy, was having epileptic seizures and a demon was cast out as part of his healing. So yes, it, it can go both ways. But if we have rules where it doesn't go both ways, where we just say, you know, this kind of music brings demons into your life, this kind of TV brings demons into your life, we're not actually being biblical, which allows the spiritual world to be dynamic and to be, to be diverse. And for the, sometimes they're practical, simple, physical problems. And sometimes they're spiritually caused and spiritually influenced, but it's not a one size fits all approach. And that is my concern. This is why I use the analogy of a doctor who only has one medication. Um, there's the old, I didn't even see the movie. There was a movie a while back where I don't remember if it was 409 or Windex, some like window cleaner. The joke was that this window cleaner would fix everything, right? It fixes everything. Like whatever you got wrong with you. Fix. I know the joke, but I haven't even seen the film. This is, this is the problem with some who are involved in discernment-type ministries, um, deliverance-type ministries. Deliverance from the demonic is the one-size-fits-all. It's the squirt of Windex or whatever it is, 409 or whatever it was. It's the squirt that cures all, right? Your elbow hurt, squirt some 409 on it, right? Like your, your window dirty, squirt some 409 on it. What, what's wrong? Uh, your, your, your food spoiled, just squirt a little 409 in there. Well, okay, well, sometimes that's going to help and other times it's going to cause problems. Um, and that is my concern with that. So I'm going to read your question again and then give you the short answer. What are your thoughts on Christians having to be careful so they don't invite demons into their lives through watching horror movies or listening to secular music? Is this biblical? I think that that is a um, reckless overreaction to a very real spiritual world and that we shouldn't be trying to teach Christians that demons are carried on certain sounds or carried through certain types of genre of film 
I think that that is a, a reckless way to, um, to treat things. So yeah, there's my answer on that. Number six, Quick Attack Films says, Hey Mike, imagine someone asking you, would you be willing to disbelieve God disbelieve in God, if the evidence led there, what would your response be? Are we obligated to say yes? Does that dishonor God? God bless. Yeah, here's a challenge. Um, in a sense, um, I want to say yes. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. Um, I think that the existence of evidence, any evidence at all, is a huge argument for God's existence, right? So, because the the nature of anything in contingent existing in the world is evidence for God. So we we, have, we often argue from like say the 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 nature of the cosmos, right? The the fine tuning argument from the universe, the the universal laws. So we have like the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force, and we have the law of gravity. We've got all these different things that are intricately fine tuned, and so we say. The nature of creation is so finely tuned that therefore it's likely God exists. Okay, but what if you were to like take away all the fine tuning? What if we just had unfine tuned, is that a word? <laughs> unfine tuned nature. What if the entire universe, all that existed was basically like one atom? And, and, and just as a thought exercise, there's only one atom and the space that the atom occupies and that's it. But we're, we're able to somehow, somehow in this, just ignore the, the, the contradiction here that we can observe and talk about and think about this, this, this all of existence is an atom. But let's suppose all that existed. I think that the one atom is sufficient evidence to believe in God and that it's silly not, I do believe this. I know that there's going to be plenty who would disagree with me here, but I think it's silly not to believe in God if there's anything contingent that is, that's not self-causing and self-sustained and self-explanatory, then you have to have something that is self-causing, self-sustained, self-explanatory, and ultimately it leads to God. So in theory, you know, if the evidence didn't lead to God, I, I want to follow the evidence, except if there's evidence, there's a God, <laughs> because the very existence of any kind of evidence, you know, if there was no God, there wouldn't be anyone to look at evidence. That's why this is this is kind of problematic because it presumes, and this is what often happens, I think, with, with skeptics, there's so much taken for granted as they begin their study for God. They begin looking for God, right? They look around at the universe. They look around at creation. They look around at their own life. They feel their own soul, their own being. They, 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 they see beauty, morality, and goodness, and that's all just there without explanation for them. And then they turn to you and say, okay, now prove there's a God. And you're like, you're sort of starting from a place where you have missed all the evidence. And so this is part, I think, part of why we often discuss these things with non-believers and they say things like, there is no evidence for God. And you're looking at them going, everything around you and in you and everything you're thinking and everything you just said is evidence for God. And so there's this divide that it maybe is best explained by the analogy of eyes being open or closed. Right? And when you close your eyes, there's nothing in the room. And as long as you keep your eyes closed, I could say to you, prove to me, that there's a painting in the room. I'm going to keep my eyes closed. It's going to be harder to prove that. Or I open my eyes, in which case I'm not even asking. But we enter into the debate with non-believers who believe there is no God after they've already worked to close their eyes, oftentimes. And so we're trying to pry them back open. Um, 
so that being said, uh, would it dishonor God? Uh, and there's another, that's another tough one. Um, because listen, when we talk about Christianity and there's plenty of philosophers and apologists sometimes, this is more of a trend right now with apologists that, that um, will sometimes talk about the existence of God as if they're totally okay if, if it just goes either way. But I want us to imagine the personal nature of this. It's one thing for us to look at the evidence and think it through and try to come to the right conclusions. But think about the personal nature of God's existence. He's there in the room when you're saying, maybe he doesn't exist. When you're entertaining the idea that God doesn't exist. When you're entertaining the idea that Christianity is false, as you kind of process through it and you work through it and you weigh through it, he's there in the room. He's with you. He's seeing you. He's hearing you. And yes, he has grace on you. And yes, he has mercy on you. But what I often see happening is there's apologists who, who feel like they have to go down the road of like being on the fence on their faith. And I think that this is unwise. I want to treat evidence fairly. But I do not want to, to be on the fence as if being undecided on these issues somehow makes me objective, right? And, and, and not biased. There's no such thing as objective and not biased. Some people plant themselves on the fence in, in an attempt to, uh, to try to gain some sense of objectivity that doesn't exist. And then they wound their relationship with God. Because how do you pray when you're in that scenario? Like, I don't, I don't see it. Um, so I do want to follow the evidence where it leads. But, I, but that acknowledges we've already got tons of evidence and I'm already following it where it leads. <laughs> so I think that's important. And I have something else, quick attack films I'll add. I'm going on long on this question, but I'll add to this, which is this. Um, I have something that's evidence that I can't present to you or to anybody else. Okay, this is my own experience with God. God changed my life. And when I'm encountering a skeptic, and maybe I can't present them, the, I, can't I can't give them my life experience, but I have it. And so why should I put that on the shelf for my own sake? So when the skeptic's like, will you follow the evidence? I'm like, yes, I will. I've already followed it. And I have evidence that you, I can't give you. And I'm following that too. My faith and loyalty to Christ is because I'm following the evidence. I'm not going to pretend to get on the fence, hurt my walk with Christ as a way of trying to imitate objectivity. There's some thoughts. Bob Duncan says, is the golden rule objective or subjective? For example, I tease my friend and he teases me because we think it's funny, but I won't do it to others because they don't think it's funny. Okay, well, Bob, there might be a bit of a confusion or con conflation between the rule and how it applies in a given situation. So the golden rule or, or the rule of, um, don't, you know, do to others as you would have them do to you, right? This is, this is a lofty, high moral teaching from Jesus. Uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Beautiful, wonderful, world-changing ethic. And that rule is just being applied differently, right? So if you tease a friend and you enjoy it and he enjoys it, then it's camaraderie, okay? But, it, but there's got to be some way he could tease you that you wouldn't enjoy it, right? There's got to be some ways he could joke with you that you'd be like, that's not appropriate, this is offensive, this is hurtful. And so the golden rule would still apply. You're like, okay, we're, we're having camaraderie in our teasing okay now that camaraderie camaraderie is broken like i know with sarcasm I, I tend to sometimes joke with sarcasm but i don't do it with my wife because she's just she's she doesn't have a sarcastic bone all right it's just it's not there and so that sarcasm doesn't hit her that way so there's some people i could joke i could poke at like fun brotherly fun but i don't do it to my wife because she's not wired that way she's like super super sincere and just straightforward person um and i like that about her so we're just applying the rule you know into the scenario we're in. The rule is the same. 
Number eight. And no more questions. We got all 20 questions from today. Thank you guys for joining. Appreciate you uh, being here. And I hope I'm helping stir you to learn to think, to think biblically about things. You don't have to agree with me on everything, as you know. But um, but just by talking about these topics, we grow. Sydney Mc, McCown says, how do I approach a conversation with someone who doesn't believe God is infallible? He believes in the God of the Bible, but doesn't think that all of God's actions are good, like in Job. Well, Sydney, you're, the, there's a few different things you could approach, right? One is you could try to build a case for God's goodness. Um, what you could talk about moral argumentation about how God, if God's not good, then there is, isn't good. <laughs> there is no good. Um, but another thing to approach is this, is that he, he thinks that the Bible is true about God, but he doesn't think that God is purely good or totally good. But the Bible's like filled with constant affirmations of the goodness of God, his total goodness, that even in the book of Job, God is the one who is validated at the end of Job, not Job. It's God. God is, is the one who's questioned throughout. This is interesting. We, we might miss this. We focus on Job, but God is the one who is debated about throughout the book. It's like, is he really good? Why would he allow this? Why would he allow this? Why would he allow this? I don't deserve it. You did deserve it. No, I don't. You guys are wrong. And this whole debate goes on. And then Job sees God and Job says of himself. Now your friend is saying what Job said earlier. Well, sometimes God does wrong things. But Job says at the end of Job, let me just read it to us, right? Um, let me see. Job 38, I believe, is where God starts speaking. And um, here, look at the response. Job 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Now, this is this is not just in theory. God himself speaks to Job and he's like, okay, fault finder. I mean, in a sense, this is this is God's response to your friend. Um, hey, you're finding faults in me. I hear you. Tell me. Tell me. Now that I'm right in your presence, now that you're in front of me. This, this is the attitude of the person who's like, when I meet God, I got a few things to ask him about. And it's like, oh, you just don't know. You don't know. And Job learned that lesson. Um, Job answered, listen to what he says when he finally stands before God after many chapters of, of, of effectively becoming the fault finder for God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? The first lesson Job got was, I'm an idiot. Like, in a good way. Because I am too and you are too. Like, we are so foolish. We always think we're wise because we've never been so smart. Right? A four-year-old thinks they're a genius because they see a two-year-old and realize how dumb they are by comparison. <laughs> a 10-year-old thinks that they're so smart, especially if they're the oldest sibling and they got younger siblings. Right? The 15-year-old has never been so smart. There's parts of their brain that are working now that have never functioned before. But the 20-year-old looks at the 15-year-old and just thinks, man, you dumb kid. Right? The 30-year-old looks back at the 20-year-old and thinks, you think you're an adult, but there's so much you just don't know. And the 50-year-old looks back at the 30-year-old and is like, ah... Uh, You'll get there. What what I'm suggesting here is we're we're always dumb. We're just smarter than we were. And when it comes to God, we have to just say, Lord, you are good. I am of small account. It is never wise to be shaking my fist at the Lord and telling him, you were wrong. I am right here. You shouldn't have done this. You should have done this other thing. I have a better plan. I have a better idea. I mean, if you've ever been at a job where you're the pro, 
and a noob comes up and and they start you know they start challenging you like hey well but why are we doing it this way why not this way and there's there's a, a season of training where you want to look at the new person and just tell them uh you know don't try to fix it just just learn just learn don't try to make it better like you don't really even know the system this is kind of us treat, talking to God, except times a million, right? The the idea that God is doing wrong, and, and, and we can identify that and tell him where he should have done differently, is ar- arrogant. Which is which is why the next response from Job is, he goes, look, I'm small. I thought I was bigger than I was. I'm small. How can I answer you? How can I tell you what to do? I lay my hand on my mouth to silence himself. And as a sense of shame and shock, no more words out of my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further, which is his way of saying the stuff I said before, that was foolish. I'm done. I'm done. Job does not yet understand his situation. This is important in the book of Job. Job lost his wife, uh, not his wife. He lost his, um, his, his kids. He lost his business. He lost all, all of his money and he even lost his physical health. And his wife's like, why don't you just curse God and die, right? Like this was the depths of despair. Job complains, God, why would God allow this? Why would God do this? This isn't good. At the end, he looks back at all his complaints. He sees God and he says, I, I will not do that again. And when God gives him a chance to answer, he doesn't even go to God. Okay, explain yourself to me. He actually sees God and has this revelation of the nature. This is interesting how the nature of God shuts down arguments against God and his actions not being good. Right? The nature of God, when Job sees, I hope we can get the, let this click in our hearts. When Job sees God for who he, God is, he doesn't even ask for an explanation anymore. He has his answer. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. God is powerful. God is all. I, I'm not even going to ask for the explanation anymore. I just know I was wrong. I don't know why I was wrong. I don't know how I was wrong. I just know I was wrong. This is my attitude when I see something happening and I think, God, why would you allow that? I think, what, who am I? I'm a, I'm a small guy. How will I ask God to be a, give account to me? He's the one who judges me. I'm not the judge of God. So Job, great example that your friend brought up. Look at Job's answer here at the end. And then God continues to, in a sense, berate Job. Not because of Job's pains. Right? God could have been Job's comfort. But first he had to deal with Job's arrogance in challenging him. And this is our challenge when we deal with troubling issues in our lives. We see something in the Bible, you think, oh, why would he do that? I don't like that. Just have the humility to say, look, I'm a dumb dumb. God has his reasons. His nature shows me his goodness. I can trust his actions. He knows more than me about this. Right? He's perfect. Who am I to challenge him? This is entirely appropriate humility before God. So um, your friend says they believe the Bible, but they obviously don't. They say they believe the God of the Bible, but the very nature of the God of the Bible is that he's perfectly good and holy and that even his judgments are just, right? Psalm 119, his judgments are just and righteous altogether. This is, this is even when he punishes, it is good and right and holy. Whether you understand it or not, it's okay because it's not your job. Um, that's just a humility thing. The other issue I'd say is a philosophical one to quickly mention, Sydney. Um, and the philosophical one is just to say this, that um, goodness is grounded in the very nature of God. So goodness just is an expression of how God's character applies to the various scenarios of life. So it's weird to think that there's this thing outside of God that's goodness and you're judging God by that thing. What, what is that thing? Where did it come from? Like it, it, it brings up a lot of philosophical problems. 
goodness just is God's nature. So he is the standard for good. Um, I hope that, that that gives your friends some help. Stephanie Morse has a question and says, what is up with all the bad hermeneutics out there? How can those of us without formal training avoid bad interpretation, application of scripture ourselves and be able to spot them in sermons? Oh, I'll get some principles for you here, Stephanie. One, if you don't understand how they got there, don't go there with them. <laughs> That's that simple. If you read the verse and you're like, I don't know how you went, how, how this verse gave you that, then just, then just withhold your, your, your acquiescence. I couldn't think of a better word. Withhold yourself giving into that interpretation. Just say, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I don't see how you got from there to there. Don't let their authority as a teacher make you feel like you just have to always agree with them. Um, yeah, even me. I want to model that for you. This is not my attempt to to be humble as, as much as it is. Um, like, I want you to be stable, help, you know, thoughtful, biblically-minded Christians. And this requires you to be able to test and evaluate every teacher you hear, you know, according to the word of God. So if you don't see how they got there, don't, don't go there with them. Number two, check the context. Whenever you see a verse used for something to make a point, you, you don't need to know Greek. Like, just look at the verse in context and ask yourself, what is this about originally? And then, then you'll see if it applies to the scenario at hand. And the better you get at this, the more quickly you will identify problems and troubles in teachings as you listen to them. And not to become like having a bad attitude about things, but to just become better at knowing scripture and obeying it for your own life. So there's all kinds of bad hermeneutics out there. I, I would also say beware the what's called the etymological fallacy. This is where someone's like, well, in the Greek, this word comes from this other word that comes from this other word. And the root of that word is like, this is not typically how you should be studying things. Um, Etymology or the meanings of the, the pieces of a word, they're sometimes significant, but frequently insignificant. And so that's something good to be aware of. Um, the best thing you could possibly do, though, is, is just read books of the Bible in total from beginning to finish. Not necessarily the Bible, beginning Genesis to Revelation. I mean, not that that's not a good, good idea, but, but rather <clears throat> read Revelation beginning to finish. Read First Peter beginning to finish. Think about it. The more time you spend soaking up scripture in context, the better off you will be. And then you will seek out good teachers, right? Because you'll get hungry for it and you'll demand it and you won't settle till you find it. Number 10, Dan Gam says, does God hate Satan and the demons? That's a tough question actually for me to ask. Um, my short answer, because this is going to be, it's already going to be a long video. My short answer is, I'll, I'll go shorter for the rest of this, of this uh, Q&A, is this. Yes and no. Um, I think that God has a love for them as he's created beings who he wants relationship with, but they chose to fall. And so their character changes, their person changes, and they're in rebellion to God and they are actually evil and God does hate evil and those who do evil. But the reason why I say yes and no is because God hates the sinner and he loves the sinner at the same time. And this might seem like, Mike, you're just playing games. But when I when I thought about how love works for me, it made a lot of sense. Right? There, there are those who might wound or hurt me who I can have mixed feelings about. I love them. I care for them. Right? What if um, you have a, a, an abusive parent? You can... You can report them, bring them up on charges, have them go to jail 
because you're testifying against them. And someone's going to be like, you're so hateful, you're tearing apart your family. And no, you're doing the right thing. But you can also love them. And you can also be thinking, I, I hope they change. I hope we can have reconciliation. I hope that we can have some hope there. The problem with Satan and the demons is that the hope of reconciliation is, we already know that's not going to happen, right? So we're only going to see the judgment side of things. But I think that there that there's probably, there's love that God has for them. It's just not going to be expressed because they hate him. Number 11, Fox.Dude says, what does Jesus mean when he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect? In Matthew 548, wouldn't that mean we're all condemned since we sin every day slash week, as you say, Mike? Um, all right, Matthew 548. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, uh, in this, let's let's back up and see what other things you're supposed to do, and then you'll be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, um, we'll back up a little bit more, a little bit more. Let's get a lot of scripture in here today. We'll start with verse uh, 21. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, meaning eternal judgment for, um, for a hateful insult. Uh, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Therefore, excuse me, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Listen to Jesus' teaching then on lust. So so anger in the heart and, and mean words are have judgment consequences. They're, they're, they're sinful, you bad in a significant way. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, that's true. Don't commit adultery. But Jesus adds and he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, he's elevating things, right? Things are getting stricter. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than, than your whole body go into hell. And I have a, a teaching on this. It's not meant to be applied physically. Um, I have a teaching on this online. Just search, you know, Mike Winger, like cutting off your hand or something like that. Um, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. They thought, oh, the paper makes it okay. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said to those, uh, it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king, the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He's speaking here of the, I think, the abuses of oaths um, as a way of getting out of your normal yes and no. Well, I didn't, I didn't promise. Um, so speaking like that. The idea here is that Jesus is making everything more strict. Or perhaps he's revealing that everything is much more strict. Because God is 
perfectly holy. Let's keep reading. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, that'd be right here, turn to him the other also. And if you would... And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now we come to the final one before the, the, the perfect statement. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who you love or who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. All right. The, the general thing in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is the elevation of what our estimation of what God wants of us is. The, it's elevating it. I want, Jesus wants us to see that God wants us to be what? Perfect like he is perfect. And to say that it's some lower degree of perfection doesn't work because we're being perfect. How? As our Heavenly Father is perfect. So we're talking about actual perfect, right? Like, like legit perfect. Perf moral perfection. Jesus wants us to, to be morally perfect. So he doesn't want us to have hatred in our hearts, lust in our motives, in our looks. He doesn't want us to um, have bitterness in our, in our, in our, uh, in our mouths, right? You fool. He, he wants us to love those who hate us and persecute us, give to those who ask of us, even if, even those who are abusing us, in, at least to some extent, we're to, we're to yield and to, to be like Christ giving in. And then we'll be perfect. Like, like our father in heaven is perfect. The, the one thing I want to add to this for us to understand it is this is not a path to salvation. It's not that you have to do these things to be saved. This is the moral perfection God's calling us to. Do you see the difference? Son, you are adopted by the blood of Christ. But Christ also presents you with your moral example to follow so that you might be perfect. That's the, that's the difference we're seeing here. A high, high moral calling. We never lower our moral calling as Christians. We just don't, for one second, pretend that that's how we get saved. So wouldn't you, you, you said, if we're supposed to be perfect this way, wouldn't that mean we're all condemned since we sin every day and week, as you say, Mike? And I would say, absolutely, yes. That is the point. One of the points. The point of looking at perfection is that you then reflect on yourself and go, I am so far from perfect. And then you fall upon the grace of Christ and you realize that Jesus is leading you to his cross where he pays for your sin, where he redeems you, where he restores you, where you're forgiven for what you've done. So Christianity has the highest possible moral calling upon its people and also incredible grace and forgiveness and that both of those things are together. Number 12, Christine says, why didn't God punish Jacob and his mother for stealing Esau's birthright and blessing? Genesis 27. In fact, why does he love Jacob and hate Esau? Malachi 1. Thanks for your ministry. Um, well, okay. I don't know that God didn't punish them. Uh, we don't know that. Like it, uh, Genesis doesn't tell us that they weren't punished for this. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter because I've, I just read through so much stuff and time's getting on. But when Jacob plots with his mom to take the birthright, that's... Um, a complicated family situation. There's the whole idea of 
the heel catching that was going on and the question of where the birthright was supposed to go. Then there's the issue of Esau selling his birthright to his brother. Then there's the issue of the blessing as opposed to the birthright. And then there's the plotting of the mother. It, it's a very complicated, it, you know what it is? It's a very human situation. It's the chaos of, of, of human life and all that. I don't think we're supposed to look at it and see as like, here's the good guy, here's the bad guy. I think we're supposed to look at it and just see, here's how the salvation history of that led to Christ played out in the past. So don't look for protagonist, antagonist exactly because Jacob's not presented in scripture as being like the good guy and Esau the bad guy. It's a little bit different than that. Um, now to Malachi 1 where it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Uh, I, do, I have taught on this in my Romans series. When I went through Romans 9 and I got to this section in Romans 9 that, that quotes that passage, I went through that in great detail. I think that what's happening there is the language of love and hate is being used to say chose and rejected. And I build a case for this. I'll give you a couple quick examples. Um, uh, Jesus says that you have to you, you have to love him and hate your father and mother. Remember that? That weird teaching? Well, it's weird if you think that he just means it in the n- normal modern sense of, I hate you. <laughs> but if you realize what he's saying is, you must choose me even over father and mother. Then you realize that Jacob and Esau present like a pivot point. They're like which one will carry the messianic line? Which one will carry the blessings, right? That came from Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and who's next? Which, which, which one is going to carry forward the blessings? And the answer is going to be Jacob. So God chose Jacob, not Esau. But in Romans 9, the important thing there is he didn't choose them based upon works, but simply upon God's decisions, not because of their goodness, but because of grace. He just chose him. So Bringing it all together, Jacob's not the good guy. Esau, the bad guy. Jacob was, why wasn't Jacob punished? Well, I mean, he went through an awful lot afterwards, right? After all that, he fled. He went through all kinds of horrible stuff. Laban is like how he learns what it's like to be swindled (laughs) and all that stuff. So, I mean, that may, you could say that was punishment. I don't know if it was punishment, but it was definitely suffering as a direct result of um, him having to flee because of what he did with Esau. So, so yes, um, I hope that helps. Why does he love Jacob, hate Esau? I think it's just saying choice. God chose one, not the other, and it wasn't based on works. That's what Romans 9, I think, is getting at. It's based on grace. Number 13, Augustinus uh, Pusinskus says, What do you make of the added word unknown in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 2 and 3, which is not in the original Greek? Could it mean that it was not a different sort of tongues rather than that no one understands them? I, I don't know if I'll be able to give you a good answer without having some time on this topic, but let me just read the verse. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now you said the added word unknown, which I'm assuming is in a different translation. Here's the New King James. Um, I'm looking for where what translation adds the word unknown here I can guess where they add it for anyone who speaks in a unknown tongue <laughs> that, that, that that could be added there um, what translation adds that I don't I, it is unknown to me what translation adds that I looked at NASB and IV New King James ESV. So we're looking at the NASB at the moment, but um, but if a translation adds the word unknown there, I think that's not a translation. That's an interpretation point, right? And the question is how much of a paraphrase you're getting. Um, 
it's it's adding more of an interpretation into the text. It does seem in verse 2 that it's speaking of unknown tongues. One who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, but for no one understands. Okay, well, he's speaking in a... Maybe, maybe a, a better term than unknown would be uninterpreted tongue. Maybe that would be a better word to add there, or at least, at least an interpretation to bring alongside. This is clearly, from the context, a tongue that is not interpreted. Uh, it doesn't say whether it's known or unknown exactly. I guess it could be known to somebody around earth, but not in that room. <laughs> so that's possible. Um, and now let me read your question again to make sure I got it. Uh, Augustinus, who says, what do you make of the added word unknown? Um, I don't know what translation adds it, unless I miss something. Sorry, live chat. If, if I missed it, I'm sure you caught it. Uh, which is not in the original Greek. Could it mean that it is not a different sort of tongue rather that no one understands them? And yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. We, 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 should, we should focus on the, the tongue not being understood by the people in the room. That's what Paul's point seems to be, and I would limit my interpretation to that. So I guess I'm just going to say I agree with you. Joshua Lara says, is Jesus, offering, um, is Jesus offering sin sacrifices in Ezekiel 45? <laughs> I laugh because Ezekiel 45, very challenging passage uh, section of Scripture. Large portions of Ezekiel are. Um, we're not going to be able to read through all of Ezekiel 45 right now. Um, yeah, we're not going to be able to read through all of it. Um, so let me just say this. Uh, I do, I'm open to the idea that in the, um, future kingdom, I'm premillennial, at least that's what I currently think, um, that in that future kingdom, that, that millennium, that there are, it seems to me there are going to be sacrifices going on during that time. And those sacrifices are not bad. Um, they're in memorial, in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. It's a celebration of what God has done through salvation history. It's an illustration of his work through the, through Israel and the participation of Gentiles and Jews in these things at that time, not now, but in that future time is a demonstration that they were in that final kingdom where, where all have been brought in together. Um, so, these sacrifices would not be covering sin the way Jesus did, right? Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and, bulls and goats would never really cover sin. Christ, his blood has covered that sin. Now, if you're like, but if you make any sacrifice after believing in Jesus, you've rejected Jesus' sacrifice. Well, if that's if that's what you think, then I, I'm going to just disagree. And I think scripture indicates this as well. So in the book of Acts, there are ongoing sacrifices and members of the body of Christ, even apostles, do perform these things in the church, in the temple. They go and they actually have these sacrifices. They do, right? When, when Paul says, I'm going to be in Jerusalem for Passover, he's going to be offering a lamb. But he's not doing it as though it's in rebellion to Christ. He's doing it like in a way of honoring Christ, of saying, look, Jesus is my ultimate. He sees all the symbolism, the whole procedure. He's like, this is all about Christ, right? He sees it all. So it's a celebration of Christ not a replacement for Christ. That's the key issue with sacrifices, with participation in, in, in Judaism. Like let's say the temple is rebuilt and sacrifices ensue. The question is, are these being done in celebration of Christ or in rebellion to Christ? That's the key issue. And that's what I think Hebrews gets at. That was what was going on, what they were opposed to is the idea of turning from Jesus over to these things as a replacement for him. And this would not be that. Um, that's if you take that interpretation view, which I do currently. 
and otherwise some people say, oh, no, no, it's very symbolic. Ezekiel here is very symbolic. The sacrifices are just speaking of how uh, everyone's going to have the knowledge of Christ and his sacrifice. Okay. Maybe they're right. Don't know. Uh, Jessica Brownlee says, hi, Pastor Mike. <clears throat> Thank you for what you do. Um, you're very welcome, Jessica. Should, should we use instruments in congregational church worship? Why or why not? The early church did not use instruments. I'm not confident the early church didn't use instruments, um, Jessica. I'm not confident they didn't. Um, I mean, when I have looked into history stuff, it just seems like people were varied, you know? Like, I just imagine if someone showed up for a church gathering at Corinth and they were like, hey, I got my uh, I got my lute or whatever whatever instrument he's playing, and he's and he's like I wrote a song about Jesus. Can I share it with you guys? Like, are we to think that they would have told him no? We don't use instruments here. Like, I don't know about that. We know there were songs going on in the early church, singing songs that would go on. So there's songs. Why would we say there couldn't be instruments? I suppose I haven't studied the history on that, but I would at least want to look more into that. But let me say this. Um, the model we have from the Old Testament is that um, musical instruments of all kinds are meant to be used for the glory of God. Okay, so let's let's read here Psalm 150. This is a key passage in the debate on whether musical instruments should be used in churches. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Now, some people would already be irritated if this was a worship song. You're just going to say praise over and over again. Like repetition is in the Psalms all the time. Let's not knock it. Uh, vain repetition is a problem, but not, not sincere. So praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And then here's how you praise him. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and, and lyre. These are stringed instruments. Praise him with timbrel, which is like a percussion instrument. And dancing. Wait, what? Yeah, dancing. Not not our modern dancing, which is largely very sexualized. Um, but no, 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 no. In its pureness. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Now we're not even just getting specific instruments. We're getting like genres of instruments. Like, oh, stringed instruments. Like this one right here on, my, on the wall. I could use that to praise God. And pipe, meaning like, whether it's flutes or things like that. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. I mean, here's drums in the sanctuary. <laughs> um, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And here's an irony uh, that we miss this, but when it says let everything that has breath praise the Lord, I think it's saying everything that has expressed, not just things that are alive, but perhaps it's hearkening back to all that was just said. Um, praise God with all that you've got in creation. I would not want to take any instrument and eliminate it from the possible praising of God, as some have done. Or they want to limit it. Like, you can only use instruments David used. But, like, I think if David heard a guitar, he'd be like, ooh, that's cool. Let's incorporate that into our worship. <laughs> you know, I think if you heard the harpsichord or the piano or something else or, or, the, or the electric piano, I think they'd be perfectly happy to incorporate that and they would be using it too. Our model for the worship of God to think that the early church rejected music in worship when they come from Judaism, which uses music pervasively in their worship, it just seems strange. It just seems very strange. This is a tradition of man. It's tra tradition of man. If you've grown up in churches that have beautiful a cappella singing, that's great. But the judgment that nobody else should be using instruments, that is entirely a tradition of man. 
our biblical example and model in Psalm 150 is, hey, God likes it when you use music to worship him. I think using music for worship is the highest, the highest calling of music. It's like the highest way to, to, to use music is in the worship of God. And so I absolutely would highly recommend it. Use it in your churches. Um, I doubt the early church had a rule not to use instruments, though they may have had circumstances that had them not using instruments on occasion, right? Because they're just home churches and they're meeting privately and they're not they're not like big organizations and stuff like that initially. And so it's understandable if they didn't have occasions, but to think that they would have forbidden it, that's weird. Number 16, Ram Lad Workshop. Your ministry is a blessing. Thank you, sir or ma'am. What should I do if a member of my fellowship with some mental issues has been making several false prophecies every day saying literally, hear me for the Lord speaks? Um, I think a, a process needs to be started where you first, um, if you're a leader in the church, you can do it, but you, you contact the leaders and you talk about the issue. And my recommendation or counsel to a church like that is confront the person, okay? Like whatever your mental problems are, you are currently causing spiritual problems, major ones. Right. So you, they have to be silenced. They have to be rebuked, corrected in, in as much grace and kindness as possible, but told like you cannot speak for the Lord because you're not accurate. You're not speaking. It's you're taking it in, you know, you're speaking for yourself and saying it's God. And if they won't listen, then I think that it, it, that would be a scenario where I would think if they will not listen and they won't hear you after two, three times, I think corrective measures, even disciplinary church member measures like like saying you cannot be in our fellowship because you're spreading lies in the name of God. Um, somebody having a mental disorder doesn't give them permission to abuse others. Lots of grace, lots of kindness towards them because of that, but not permission to actually cause harm to other people and disrupt the service and profane the name of God. Nope. So um, yeah, God give you wisdom. Hope the leadership is willing to um, take on their responsibility because as a leader, these are the things I hate dealing with, right? Like nobody wants to deal with this stuff, but it's a responsibility that you got. Number 17, Bane McKee, or Mackey, says, what are some good books for important topics like systematic theology, hermeneutics, complementarianism? Well, complementarianism, I'm just going to have to say I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> let me, let me, I'll, I'll make some book recommendations on that one at, when I teach on that in however long it's going to take. I'm still at the beginning stages of the research there. Um, I get asked for good, for book recommendations all the time. So, Bane, let me tell you this. I am so hesitant to recommend books in the sense that people are like, I'm just looking for safe a safe book where I could just open it up and know it's trustworthy and good. Um, I've read systematic books, systematic theology books. I haven't read one in, in, in recent years, and I don't remember which one. Like, I have Thiessen. Okay, I remember going through that when I was in the school ministry. Okay, I thought it was helpful. I got the, um, uh, on my shelf back there somewhere, I got the Pentecostal, um, uh, I don't know where it is. I recently re reorganized some of my books, so I have them in. We've got like six bookshelves in this house, so these are just two. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, the Foundations of Pentecostal Theology, that was one that um, my pastor had recommended to me and I found very helpful at a younger age. And now that I'm a little older, I'm like, Wait, would I recommend it? I don't know. I, I guess I'd have to look at it again with fresh eyes more closely. I'm just scared to recommend some stuff like that because I don't want you guys to think, well, if I trust Mike, I should trust this. So what are good systematic theology books? Maybe what you should do is have more than one. Um, Wayne Grudem has one that's very popular. I'd consider looking at it. Thesis is, is pretty decent. Um, 
or can I just sign off on all of them? And I no, I I can't. Hermeneutics books. Um, we did. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, for hermeneutics, I did a book. Oh, what's the author's name? I'm confident I have it over here somewhere. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway. But the funny thing is, is that the hermeneutics books, I was like, yeah, I like about 80% of this. When it came to like the teaching on typology, I thought that's terrible. <laughs> so there was like some real problems with it. So like trouble with recommending books. Sorry, Bane. Sorry, man. I recommend the Bible. <laughs> Number 18. New Testament theologist says, how do you explain the subordination of Jesus? And you give two verses. We'll read both of those. To the Father within Trinitarian theology. I explain it via incarnational subordination. Philippians 2.5. Hebrews 29. Maybe you meant 2.9. And 5.8. Um, you give me five scripture references. We probably won't be able to sit and sift through all of that for the sake of the Q&A. Because it's just, you know, it is what it is. But we'll look at a couple of them. Um, I want you to understand that, that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. So you explain this in relation to incarnation, the incarnation. Um, here's the thing that people would want to know. Um, there's at least a, a few different views about, about how Jesus is, how the son is submissive to the father. And is that something that happened at the incarnation or is it something that has always been going on eternally? The eternal subordination of the son or is it more like you said incarnational subordination of the son? And so if you take the incarnational view, you say, well, look, Christ is submitted to the father, right? We read John. We read, we read that Jesus is walking and only doing what the father tells him to do. He's walking in submission clearly. He's humbled himself, which is why I think you've referenced Philippians 2.5. He humbled himself lowered himself so that submission to the father he says while he's on the earth the father's greater than i i view that in an incarnational sense um but uh but it doesn't mean it doesn't have an eternal sense as well so I, i'm not i'm not settled on this issue um the incarnational answer helps us with a lot of things and it makes a lot of sense the question is can you limit it to the incarnational answer and say that there is no submission there is no submission before the incarnation. It, it would be that that would be kind of the um, the limiting that I would I'm I'm not ready to do. Uh, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Himself, so that God may be all in all. So here we have the Son who's subjecting Himself to the Father uh, post glorification. Okay, so it's not just that He submitted; He submitted post glorification. There's a sense of submission. My thought is that at least this verse seems to give credence to the idea that there's not a problem with um, the son always having a submission attitude towards the father, that this might actually be part of how God shows love within the Trinity. That, that submission is another feature of love. Leading and submitting are features of love that if those things aren't aren't possible because there is no submission within the within the, the members of the Trinity, then perhaps there's like a deficiency that's there. So, yeah, maybe that's... I, I guess I lean towards the eternal one, but I'm not settled on it, and I don't have a really dogmatic, strong perspective on it. So I think that you can explain, my short answer, you can explain several things through a incarnational element, and that it may have been that the incarnational element changed or 
increase the submission of the son, but that doesn't mean that there's no submission at all eternally prior to that. And, and I would lean towards thinking there is, but I'm not settled. Elmer, like the glue, has a question. Hey, Mike, if the nail of a crucified victim was inserted through the heel bone or ankle bone, how should we interpret John 19.36? Wouldn't a nail cause the bone to break? Thank you for your ministry. I've thought about this myself. John 19.36. Let's read it, and we will analyze. Um, okay, so Jesus is, is, is here on the cross. He's been pierced by the nails. And then there's an, there's an Old Testament connection made by John in John 19.36. He says, For these things uh, came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. So this, we're now left with a question is, does Jesus, must Jesus die with no bones broken at all? Or with no bones broken in a particular fashion. <laughs> so, um, so if you take the no bones broken at all approach, then you're you're going to we, we don't know where Jesus was nailed, but we're going to have to you're going to have to assume that the nailing would have happened in a way that didn't break his bones. Okay, and this is okay. I, I think that you can say theologically, I believe the scripture. It tells me that not one of his bones is broken. I think that means no bones broken. Not not the tiny metacarpals in the hands not not the heel bone which driving a nail through the bone would seem to break it or maybe piercing a bone is not the same as breaking it you could argue that as well um, alternately you could have a different different approach and that's just to say the context of john is about the breaking of the legs to speed up the death of jesus so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him after the legs broke, they would die much more quickly on the cross because they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe properly. Um, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. This is the thing that says this came to pass to fulfill not a, not a bone will be broken. Um, so you could simply say this is the application is, is and, and this is fair. I think it's fair to do this. Go look. The verse is saying not a bone will be broken. Are we supposed to be taking this as a strict literal policy? Like if Jesus was seven and he broke a bone, like playing with friends, he broke his finger, like now he can't be the Messiah. Is that what John intends us to think? Is that what the Holy Spirit's trying to get across? Or is it instead trying to say, hey, when you guys take the Passover lamb, they can't have broken bones. You don't break their bones. That This is, this is a... Um, a typological connection to Jesus as our Passover sacrifice. So all that's really being established is Jesus and the connection with the Passover lamb. This is typology. This is theology being taught as his, our, he's our sacrifice to cleanse us of our sins. I'm okay with any of those approaches. Um, we don't know that Jesus actually had his bones broken. Um, we have found the nail of a crucified victim in the actual heel bone, but we also know that it's not like the soldiers were following these tightly written rules when they crucified people. You literally have a dude with a nail and a hammer who goes up to someone's foot and hammers it in. And we have examples of it going through the heel, but it didn't necessarily have to go through the heel. Sometimes they didn't pierce the feet. Sometimes other things happened. Um, the, the, there's a variety of ways people were crucified, there's what's more common, but we can't like necessarily say Jesus had to have had it happen this way. So what, what do you, what do you do when you have a variety of crucifixion examples and you don't know exactly how it would apply to Jesus? 
You look at the way Jesus is described on the cross, and that's your rule for understanding what happened in his situation, right? Because you have this historical account of the New Testament. And they indicate his hands and feet were pierced. And if you think that John means Jesus didn't have his bones broken, then John is probably, from his eyewitness testimony, saying they didn't break his bones. That's just not how they pierced him. Or he thinks that piercing isn't breaking, because it's a different word for a different meaning. Or that John simply doesn't mean no broken bones of any kind. He means no broken legs, just like the lamb didn't have broken legs. All that to say, what it comes down to is this. Elmer, like the glue. It comes down to this. Um, what we're really trying to figure out here is what John meant. Not get this like uh, strict, literal, strict literalistic rule here and then apply it over there. Uh, I hope that helps. Adam Wright has a question. This is our last one for today. He says, when trying to be biblically based, how do we know when to be kind and when to be aggressive? Oh man, that's a good question. I mean, put yourself in my shoes, Adam. Like, can you come up with rules of life that apply like widely to various situations like that? Um, how about when your aggression is not for your personal defense, nor is it because you're irritated, nor is your aggression is not being led by the flesh, but is being led by proper zeal for the Lord and a desire to help others. There are times to be aggressive in helping others when you're harsh, straightforward, even, even, even seemingly unkind, but it's not being driven by personal agendas, but by the seeking the kingdom of God. And it's not being driven by bitterness and anger and, and any of the works of the flesh that we're to put off, but it's really being driven by the, by the work of the spirit. Is that easy to, to tell? Well, I mean, it depends on how spiritually minded you are, I think at the time. Um, when to be kind and when to be aggressive. I think that anybody who is always aggressive, this is one of the problems with our social media culture. Um, people like me, who, I mean, I'm just a guy trying to teach content online, but you you go, you get like a reputation and you find that when you teach a certain way, it kind of like works better or not. So you have some people online who they, they have the more aggressive approach, right? And then it becomes like their identity. Like they just are this aggressive person all the time because they're trying to fit that mold. And others who are like super gentle and that's all they are is gentle. And in every scenario, they're going to be gentle because it's like they're, they're, they're cut and paste personality type now. Um, but I think that Jesus has a variety of things. Like he says to one person, like, hey, come here, I'm going to dine at your house. Hey, you know, go go and sin no more. Right? Like, do you, you want to be healed? And he says to someone else, like, oh, yeah, sons of the devil. <laughs> and he, he rips on people. He's like, oh, it's going to be it's gonna be horrible for you in Judgment Day. Like, Jesus said this stuff. Like, could you imagine going up to someone and you're telling them, dude, on Judgment Day, you're going to have it so bad. Jesus did that. And he was also super kind and gracious. He also turned the other cheek. He also said that while people were killing him, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus knew because he was always about God's kingdom and he, and he always knew what his mission was and he understood how that applied to the scenario at hand. So to get rid of self, get rid of self-concerns, get rid of bitterness, never re respond harshly because you're irritated, but do so because it's what the situation needs. God give you wisdom in it, Adam. Um, my, my advice will either... Help or be far too vague. I don't know which one it'll be. But um, but if Jesus is my example, then I realize there are times to be harsh and there are times to be super gentle and kind. Um, one rule that I think can help is Jesus was more harsh. Some people think, oh, but he was harsh to religious people. Dude, like they were all religious people. So I don't know what that means. But he was harsher to the proud and arrogant and he was kinder to the humble. That I think is a rule that we might be able to apply. 
um, not too recklessly, but at least there's a consistency there. Jesus tended to be more gentle and kind to the humble and to the proud and arrogant. He tended to be more harsh. He would sometimes require people to humble themselves before the kindness that he would give them, right? Um, That's interesting as well. So thank you guys for joining me. This has been the 20 questions Friday Q&A. I do it every day. Every day? No, I don't. Thank God. I don't do it every day. (laughs) Every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. And I answer your questions from the live chat. And these have all been your questions. I hope you guys have found answers and it's helped you to think biblically about things. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you haven't done it recently, when's the last time you sat and just listened to scripture? Just listen to it. Just go get one of the apps. Listen to it for free. Just listen to the scriptures being read to you. When's the last time? Pick a book of the Bible you haven't read in too long and just listen through. There's my final word for you. Thank you all. Have a great day.